I'm Jen Watt. Welcome to the Schools of Wellbeing podcast. This podcast invites you to listen to conversations I am having with fellow researchers and academics who explain the schools of thought that influence what they think well-being and well-becoming means and how it connects to schools, students, teachers, educational leaders, and wider communities. I also have vibrant conversations with K-12 educators about the inspiring ways their schools are living out well-being and well-becoming. My motto for this podcast, come for the joy, stay for the flourishing. I'm so grateful you are joining us as we think about how to live well and thrive in schools. About one hour away from the University of Manitoba, located right on the shores of Lake Winnipeg, Gimli is a vibrant community known for its annual Icelandic and film festivals, great fish and chips, and a middle school that is committed to helping students feel more hopeful. This episode is a lively, thought-provoking conversation with Jim Gibbs, principal, Rhea Sherrier, grade 7 and 8 teacher and assistant principal, and Kelly Croy, guidance counselor at Dr. George Johnston School. Dr. George Johnston is a middle school that is part of the Evergreen School Division. We talk about how and why hope is so important in building students' sense of well-being. This was a completely engaging conversation to be a part of. I hope you find it as thought-provoking as I did. Oh, hello everyone. We have traveled out here to Gimli, uh, Manitoba, and we're sitting with a team of folks that have been involved in the WB2 project, and I'm just getting them to introduce themselves to you. Hi, I'm uh, Jim Gibbs, and I'm the principal here at Dr. George Johnson School in Gimli. My name is Rhea Sherrier, and I teach grade 7-8 classroom, and I'm also the assistant principal at Dr. George Johnson. I'm Kelly Croy. I'm the guidance counselor here at Dr. George. Thanks. So, first of all, I just thought I'd ask you a little bit about how you got involved in this particular project. You came involved in the WB2 project, which is the partnership between Manitoba Association of School Superintendents and University of Manitoba and Manitoba Education. But you were given kind of a, a free reign, I guess. You had choice about what you wanted to do. So how did you end up deciding to do this particular project on well-being? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you decided to do and what direction you, you, you headed. Right. So um, I guess there, there was some data uh, that was shared, I think, with school divisions on wellness of students mm-hmm. in Manitoba. Uh, maybe a few years back there was a survey. Yeah. And um, I guess sort of the, uh, the results were concerning, you okay. know, in terms of, um, you know, mental wellness, as I say. And um, from that, I think this is partially sort of the spearhead for this mm-hmm. initiative, right? And so we're, I guess, my superintendents approached me because I guess we're like, we're the only middle school in Evergreen School Division. So right. in a sense, I think the initiative, the work was sort of aimed at middle schools. So mm-hmm. by default, we got uh, volunteered. Lucky you, you know, volunteered. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. That <laughs> Another initiative we yeah. to do. So my only sort of caveat was that it sort of has to build upon something we're already doing. Absolutely. Like we're not going to invent something new just for this. So. Mm-hmm. Um, we had already been involved in some things, um, some programming around career education, and that was because we know that um, you, you know that um, it's never too early to introduce career education, and especially at middle school, yeah. there's some uh, data that uh, you know 50% of students get into later high school and really haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what happens after high school, yeah. right? So the sooner you get kids engaged in that thinking, the better. So we had that sort of in place, and so I guess the piece was like. How do we find a connection to wellness? Mm-hmm. And so I'd always been interested in the idea of, you know, how do people emerge or how do they succeed going through difficult circumstances, right? And so I don't know if you're familiar with a book by Viktor Frankl. Just eludes me right now, uh, the name of the book, which is crazy. I mean, the short story is Frankl was a psychologist and he end, ended up in a Nazi death camp. And so, uh, you know, being an academic, he sort of, at least in, in his mind, kept doing work. And so he started to wonder, why is it that some people persist and other people just gave up, right? Right. So what he found out is that those people, those inmates, uh, that kept a connection to something afterwards, which I think that today is kind of called being future-focused, yeah. that those people were more likely to survive, right? And so from that, the word hope comes to mind right and then I just sort of you know like 
so many of us, I then went to, you know, my browser and typed in hope. Yeah. And like, I wonder what the, wonder what the research is on that idea. And then now I came across uh, C.R. Snyder's work. You know, that was, that was the eye opener, right? And I, he has done so much work, right? And, then I, and with children mm-hmm. as well as adults. And immediately that essentially was what he was saying, you know, is that if you can connect to the future in some way, his research says that there's a real connection between hope and wellness, right? And so that's what sort of I thought, let's go from there. And um, he gives some really good guidelines, like the thing about, uh, he's very specific about hope and what it is, right? Yeah. Like we all have a general idea about, I really hope this happens, right? But he had, was really specific and this fits so much into what we do at school, right? So Snyder identifies, uh, there's three uh, components of hope. There's goal setting, pathway thinking, which is that, you know, which is sort of recognize uh, what are some ways around the obstacles and difficulties I may find in life on on my path to reaching my goals. And also agency thinking, which is that um, uh, how do I motivate myself to sort of do all that? And really, that is essentially what we do in school all day long, right? Especially we, in middle school. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So the connections were there. And so uh, I said, let's let's sort of evolve what we're doing around careers, but let's make it focus. Instead of careers being sort of the focus, let's make it, you know, sort of like a, an accessory, right? In, in the sense that we'll try to build hope in kids and change and, and potentially shape and change the way kids think about their world. And at the same time, we can sort of connect that ultimately to also thinking about the future and careers. And even sort of, where, and as these, these ladies will mention, thinking about, oh, what kind of, like in middle school, you can think about what kind of subjects should I take in high school? if I'm really good at this and if I like this. So that stuff, it all can happen. So that's sort of, um, you know, that was sort of how this particular project emerged. And I guess the sort of the name for this project is my learning path, right? Mm -hmm. So we sort of constructed it in the idea of a path, which is that I'm someplace and I'm going someplace, right? And so each of the units um, are, that's sort of a theme in terms of what happens in that unit. I find that fascinating. I love the fact that you've got this idea that where you were already doing something on careers, but when you were framing it before, it was sort of like the career was the end goal of the project, and now you're seeing that actually it's hope and it's well-being that's the end goal, but but careers are a path of thinking that, and it's a way of helping kids Mm -hmm. kind of find the path beyond just their next decision, right? And to be able to connect to their well-being through that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I think think that lots of people in their life can sort of identify sort of a moment in time maybe where something happened and it connected to them in the future. Like for me, like, uh, you know, nobody in my family, in my immediate family had gone to so post-secondary school, yeah. right? It wasn't really anything that was talked about at home, but I remember something as simple as, I grew up in Nova Scotia, and um, going for a drive one day with my parents and we drove by uh, St. Francis Xavier University in Anikinish, and uh, it's kind of built in kind of a Ivy school, so yeah. it's red brick and Ivy, and I looked at it and said, wow, I bet you I could go there someday. And I did, you know. But that sort of was the first time I ever thought that. So something as simple as that, right? And so that's why part of one of the things we do is we take kids to the U of M, the U of W. We take them places. Because that one of those things might be the spark to say, hey, I could be here, right? Mm -hmm. I can insert myself into this reality. And, And sometimes that's all kids need, right? Just something like that. So it's it's about creating a whole bunch of experiences that potentially create that sort of spark where their future might lead. And some kids need some hope. Yeah, right? and I agree with you. And, and, and also that rural connection there too. I grew yeah. up in rural Alberta as well. And we did have a campus that now is a, a University of Alberta campus, but at the time it was kind of a college campus. But my parents, same with you, didn't do post-secondary, et cetera. So that idea of like, you, you're not always driving by the biggest university or you know taking swimming lessons or some of those things that city kids might have that access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, for me, it was, I joined a ski team that was out of that particular building and that was the first time I entered and you walk by college kids and you're like well what are you doing and then we would go on trips together with some of the college kids and they'd be doing homework and I they would do subjects that I'd never even heard of or had thought about and so it's it's that ability to have that idea because how can you hope for something that you don't even know exists yeah. right yeah. so yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah I've been excited to hear about how this project has unfolded for you all um, so I think We'll just ask a little bit about, so what did you end up doing in the first year? So you've got this idea around hope, you've got this idea around going forward into the careers. So what did that actually look like as you started to put it into a program? Well, we, we looked at what like positive 
self-talk. We looked at what would get them to move forward. Um, I'm really big on nature and doing those kinds of things and being outside. We, so we did some of that. We did some mental health stuff and we had a speaker come in and, and talk about that. Was it with the whole grade or did you have specific students in mind yeah. or how yeah, did that work? That yeah. yeah, so decided. that was one of the things we, because I was also pretty determined that because, you know, if you've been in this sort of business a long time, you know that there's a day at a meeting and someone hands you a finder or a book and here you should do this right and now the example we use and I'm not disparaging the product but Lions Quest an example very well developed program and so here it is and you give the teachers and say hey you should do Lions Quest and you know what teaching is like right I'm busy every day before you gave me this thing my day is full right so it's hard for teachers to find a context and so what happens if these binders end up in shelves yep and often disappear because there actually was a product that we identified from previous years that we say, hey, we could use this in a program and we couldn't find it anywhere <laughs> in the school division. But we know all schools yes. got this book, but we couldn't find it yeah. anywhere because that's what happens. Yeah. It's in a box somewhere and teacher just stopped yeah. using Somebody it. Somebody right? brought it out to the cottage and didn't bring yeah, it back. Be- yeah, <laughs> because other initiatives came on, right? Yeah. So the first thing I say, this has to be part of what a teacher would do every day. So in other right. words, it had to be sort of uh, embedded in the curriculum as yeah. it exists, right? We had to build upon things, right? So at the point at which Soraya and um, Kelly, uh, we talked about this this morning, I would sort of say to other teachers, we've done some work and we think this is good. Here's the thing. And they could pick it up and say, oh, here's a math lesson, right? Because we have to do this and this is, fits exactly into this outcome in math, right? So that was pretty essential. So with the population, at first we thought we should have a target group, right? You know, and the other piece was I wanted to, I also wanted to say we have to have some evidence that this is good. Because in, in education, far too much is that people say do this thing because it's good. And why is it good? Because I said it's good. And so we had to prove that this is good, right? So again, going back to the work of Snyder, he actually developed a measurement tool of hope. You, If you accept that his premise that being hopeful leads to better wellness, then this is a measure of kids' wellness as well, right? right? So it's called the um, Young Children's Hope Scale, or the Children's Hope Scale, because the neat thing is there's three of these. There's one for young children, children in middle school, and also for older adolescent adults, right? And so that was, so we sort of gave that to a whole, all the kids in grade seven and eight. And from that, we said, let's select a group. And we sort of thought, okay, so here's some things we're going to look for. You know, we're thinking of particular populations that are at risk. So we're going to look at kids who are uh, involved in child family services, kids that... Um, indigenous mm-hmm. um, we wanted to be sort of we wanted to have some gender equity and then sort of we, we left spot open for low scores that didn't fit any criteria right, right yeah. so that was sort of our target group right and so that's what we thought we need to do a thing for them and how many uh, so students did that end up being 16 yeah, yeah yeah we thought that was a manageable yeah, number absolutely. yeah yeah right. yeah because yeah. the first year we decided Kelly was gonna because this was sort of an out-of-classroom thing to begin with yeah. right? Kelly the counselor was going to work with these kids, right? Yeah. Right. And so, um, just so that's so actually quite a lot of kids to work with as a counselor on top of all the other things that you're doing as a counselor, <laughs> yeah, too, yeah. right? So, you've got to yeah. make sure it's manageable, right? right? Yeah. So, we developed sort of five units. And so, the first one was sort of departure point who I am, right? So, that yeah. was self awareness. The second unit was uh, roadblocks, yeah. right? What might get in the way? Parts uh, which might involve things like uh, drug and alcohol, peer pressure, uh, mental illness, anxiety, depression, things like that. Part three is pathways, which which is, you know, that's what involves visits to sort of sites. It was only in part four that we looked at careers, right? And so we used a piece of software called Career Cruising. Mm-hmm. And then the last part of it was called Arrival, which was that the students would present what they thought would be a good career choice to them, to the high school counselor, right? Well, that's neat. Yeah, so then it also, at that point, formed a part, thinking of Ruth Sutton's work around school transition, yeah. it fit into that piece <coughs> as well. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, Kelly can tell you better about how all that went. Um, there was, you know, pros and cons yeah. to it. Yeah, there was pros and cons. So we found that Mondays was not always a great, it wasn't a great day because lots of kids missed 10 days. Um, yeah. The classroom management piece was really hard because these were kids from four different classes coming in. Right. And for some, it's like, ooh, this is a yes, party. And, for, and we also found two, or I also <coughs> found two, they didn't want to share. They weren't as willing to share because they weren't comfortable with their peers as well. It's not quite the same community as. Right, as their passion community, because it's not long enough time to build relationships. Yeah, so that those those were some of the real challenges of 
of doing that and just getting them to buy in. Like it was hard to get them to buy into what we were doing. So. Did yeah. you have any moments where you felt like the buy-in became a bit stronger? Like maybe doing some of those visits and sites to workplaces or to the universities, did that sort yeah. of, or were there other moments? Yeah, yeah, we went to U of M and I, I remember that being a really good experience for the students. Um, we had an indigenous coordinator or speaker and she was very good and they really connected <coughs> with her. So that was, that was the first time actually I heard one student talk about wanting to be a mechanic and that was a, a really exciting thing. yeah um and and actually when we did the path sort of they create a path of what they want to do yeah near the end I felt that more <coughs> bought into it yeah near the end but it was definitely a struggle it takes time right it takes definitely even yeah. just building the relationship with them right because I didn't sure. work with all of them so yeah. just and building and they were all in grade eight so they were going to be going to the high school too, yeah so. and so how did it go as they presented to the high school counselor did you feel like that that was something that was a big part of the program that was useful and uh in terms of them having an authentic audience and also that them getting to know these students yeah I think so I think it was a good experience and I also think it's go good for the high school counselor to know not that year but in the I mean we'll probably talk more yeah. about this some of the kids didn't know what credits were and so that was a surprise for us right knowing yeah. well how did they not know this how did we not know they didn't know this so just things that come out of that but building the relationship piece was so important particularly for that first group of kids that went through because they, they, there were some tough ones in there so, yeah. so was, well and that's all like important learning for for everyone to right. think about that and, and you know not having gone to high school in Alberta my kids are middle school age and my, my daughter I didn't know the credits or how many credits or right. that sort of thing so it's right. partly the education of parents and families as right. well too and, and mm -hmm. it's not intuitive that you would know that or which classes you have to take or when or if you right. don't take this math but you do take this math that opens Changes. these doors but yeah. not these doors and all of that yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. so it's kind of first year of the project you you start with it for you've got this these units you've got these 16 kids that are that are going through this and you start to to learn where some of the roadblocks are for you and right. your pathway to this right. project and stuff so I just will double check with whether there was any more insights um, from the data collection or surprises or anything from that first year so in Snyder's work they sort of identify the scales Martel of 30 so they identify like if a student scores 21 then they sort of are, are really have a lot of confidence about their ability to, to plan and deal with sort of uh, challenges and 17 or lower is considered that this person is sort of in an at-risk category for, okay. you know, coping. And so uh, we were really surprised at how low some of the scores were, right? And so that was um, a real eye-opener for us, right? And yeah. so that, you know, it, it initiated a lot of sort of thinking and talking and, and I guess a real sense that, wow, this, this seems like this is something that deserves our attention, right? And so I think, like, I think our control or sort of our experimental group for this, I think, like, their average was like 10. Wow. So it gives you an idea, oh, yeah. right, of how, you know, in a sense, and I, I hate to generalize around this, but no. in a sense, it's a, it seems like a real sense of hopelessness, right, about my agency, my what the future has in mind for me, right? So that was a surprise. It was also a surprise that um, there were about five students that didn't seem to fit into a demographic of what we would think at risk. Yeah. So they were students that either um, you know like we're very involved in sports extracurricular activities have high high academic achievement that sort of thing and really we're kind of like um, gee why is she in there like yeah. she's good at sports she's a good student she seems to have what we consider a pretty sta uh, stable uh, family situation yet somehow she has a sense of hopelessness about herself in the face of the future so it really made us think about that sort of concept of that there may be kids sort of suffering in silence right yes. and so you know it's invisible it's, yeah exactly right? like that right. you wouldn't yeah there's kids that you can guess might be but yeah. there's there's those that don't fit the profile yeah guess, exactly right? so that made us think about yeah we need we do maybe need some ways to sort of identify these kids right if we're going to help right. them right yeah because uh, it's often like it's not uncommon like you know it's a small town that we hear about kids went to high school and we hear that student xyz is struggling like why are they struggling because yeah. they were just thriving in middle school yeah. so there was something there underneath that we didn't recognize about their ability to cope and deal with um, life's uh, you know circumstances of life yeah. the other thing uh, was that girls scored noticeably lower than males 
mm-hmm. right? Which does then, that connect to Schneider's work? Did they, did, is that something no, that they talk it, about no, at all? Is interestingly there a gender not. difference there? What or? I found is they, they haven't found any gender differences. Okay. At least to the extent that I've done the research, yeah. I haven't come across it yet. Yeah. So but that was you some, did here. Yeah. Oh, and, and so that was something definitely. So at, at one of our year at year end of year one um, objectives was let's watch for this next year. Maybe this is just a blip. Yeah. It's just noise, right? Yeah. And also, it, we're dealing with relatively small numbers for yeah. research, yeah. right? So, I mean, you know, this is sort of not like, you know, it's not pure research. Yeah, in we can't totally doing physics and, and chemistry, yeah. right? But then doing a little research, we realize, I come across the fact that um, in early adolescence, like you look at the onset of um, anxiety, depression, other mental health um, concerns, girls are way overrepresented in boys, right? If this, if hopefulness is connected to wellness, then it seems to make sense that girls' sense of hope should be lower based upon what we know about wellness, right? So Yes, I, I was just listening to a podcast, not this one. <laughs> uh, and they were talking a lot about social media and, and girls and because more girls are involved with social media and the impact of social media on self-esteem. There's a lot of comparison. There's a lot of things. So interesting, too, wondering about, I mean, that's a, a whole pathway we don't need to go down, but just thinking about some of these things and, and is that part of what's influencing girls? We were just talking about this. Oh, were you? Okay, that's interesting. In my classroom, we actually have been having a lot of conversations about that recently. Yeah. And the girls often bring it up first. And it's... It's interest, really interesting. And so you you was an example of a because you're so you, you class is doing something now where you're they're tracking their screen time, right? Yeah. Oh, interesting. And yeah. So you well, I needed to teach some yeah. statistics for yeah. our grade seven math unit, so we do yeah. it in the form of analyzing our screen time statistics and getting kids to volunteer their they go out on a limb and put their number on the board of their hours of screen time. As a parent, I'm feeling super um, like that almost made me. Yeah. I had I had a, I, re, I had a reaction there because I'm like, oh, I'd be so embarrassed if my kid was putting their numbers out there. Because it's high, right? Like, because that's what kids yeah. do. Well, right? I, yeah. I also contribute mine as yeah. the like, role model in the yeah. room, and it makes me feel anxious yeah. sometimes. Yeah. So it, it's important that we talk about it, though, because yeah. it's a huge, becoming a huge roadblock for some right. kids that I'm exactly. noticing. And use the example of a girl who, I guess, recorded 50 hours of screen time, right? And then In a week. Yeah. In a week. And so, I mean, and then so you had some discussion about this maybe is not a good thing. And she's like, I can't sleep at night. Maybe there's something else you could do. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and turning towards other options instead of, well, what do I, what do, I do before bed instead of being on my phone? What, do, what are other options that might be better for me? And she's coming forward now and saying, like, hey, I've been coloring. She wants you to notice that she's actually doing that pathway thing. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to see. But it's a good conversation, like, for today's world because especially for girls, right? Because if they're spending a lot of time online, uh, they're seeing a lot of stereotypes. And that's what you were talking about in terms of counseling, that girls who have a real sense of a negative self-image because they don't match what... Uh, is being shared, right? Yeah. And so that's a potential roadblock, right? And all of it is For curated sure. too, right? Exactly. So you're not, you're not actually seeing anything too. that realistic. Right. You're seeing what people mm-hmm. are wanting to put out mm-hmm. in that too. Yeah, yeah and I, the, the, this podcast was just talking about the fact that like we would never invite a hundred people into our bedroom yeah. first thing in the morning. But right. if the very first thing you do <laughs> is reach for your phone, you basically invited a hundred people and the, the snaps and the comments and you're immediately starting your day in that reactive mode and you may have ended your day in that reactive mode. So what does that mean for us? So that's interesting to me. So um, yeah, those, that's a Well, and we, sorry, just to have mm-hmm. one more thing. We talked about as adults how that can be hard on us. Never mind a growing teenage brain uh, to be sure. seeing all of these things, right? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to decipher what's what. So. so at the end of year one, we identified three things that were challenges and that we had to find in our own sense we had to find a way around these right so one as you mentioned was attendance the class time was tied to a particular moment in time Mondays at one o'clock and so if (laughs) someone missed that day if that day got cancelled that was lesson time lost right Right. Uh, classroom climate which Kelly talked about which that there wasn't like there was that group of students didn't really have uh, relationships. They didn't have mm-hmm. an ethos of working together, right? right? To to merit really good work and discussion. Mm-hmm. There were kids who were missing classes at that time that we really wanted to reach, right? Yes, yeah. So it was decided. It made perfect sense. We said 
this needs to move into a classroom. And so Rhea was doing, Rhea does a lot of thinking and work around growth mindset. And she's also assistant principal. Yes. So it was easy to ask her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we thought, okay, so why don't you collaborate with Rhea? Because ultimately what we want is to develop something that no longer really involves Kelly and it's something that teachers can do, right? And so we're moving towards that. But in moving into year two, uh, moving it into classroom, keeping a focus on girls. But I think the year one, I think what happened in year one is we nailed down the structure. It's right, like, yeah. We really felt good about these are the things to do. And yeah. so as we went into year two and with what we learned, what we learned further from research, I think we really sort of nailed down these are the essential components yeah. of a program meant to sort of develop hopefulness in kids, right? Absolutely. And so we've got that nailed down. Now it's a question of sort of uh, massaging it, uh, uh, filling it out uh, in terms of programming and content, and making it something that teachers can easily deliver. Right. And we started it earlier too. So yeah. when I started, yeah. originally it was in February, and this year, right. we, or sorry, last year we started in November. Right. So what are some of the examples of what it looked like when, when it did get transferred into your classroom? What were some of the things that you did? Yeah, so we I started the year knowing we would be going into this and we'd planned to start November yeah. because yeah. we needed that extra time. Um, so leading up to November, I kind of front-loaded the group that we had with lessons that focus on growth mindset to really mm -hmm. set the tone mm -hmm. for the project because mm -hmm. we wanted them to have that knowledge in their pocket first. Yeah. Um, sometimes I like to use the phrase that I beat it to death and the, eventually the kids would look at me and be like, but I'm going to try it this way because I have a growth mindset. <laughs> and so sometimes I'm like, that means you're learning. Good. <laughs> so now it's just a, it's a general theme of our room all the time. So that really helped. And then Kelly joined us once a week on Monday starting in November. And we followed the same model, like the basically units. the same yeah. units yeah. as she did the previous year. And but now you as a classroom teacher was part of it and partnering with yeah. it so it could yeah. be reinforced throughout the week or you could have the same language exactly. that was the being used and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. So did that mean that the experimental group just came from your classroom? Is that what yeah. shifted then? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah. Yeah, sense. we. I mean, we and we had to accept that. You know, there are a couple of things. There are subgroups in there. Yeah. And it's also the case that you know there's going to be kids in there as we found out with the surprises are going to need work in this area. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. For sure. Right? Yeah. There's yeah. so there's always going to be a group of and yeah. and by doing this, then it became a whole class though. So yeah. so you even if it wasn't the identified group, everyone was benefiting from right. it. Yeah. Yes. And one of the one of the benefits of having a mixed grouping was that we also got to use part of the, the research, I think, suggested that you pair low hope and high hope children oh, right. together yeah. and how that can have an effect. So yeah. that was a strategy we, we did use um, and that I've kind of continued to use just in general in yeah. the classroom and recognizing that that's an easy choice <coughs> I can make as a classroom teacher. Absolutely. Instead of, you know, you always want to make them feel good and let them mm -hmm. pick their own partners. Yeah. But sometimes it is important for you to, to really structure the pairings depending on what type of learning you're yeah. going to be doing. Even just hearing another student be able to say something in a more hopeful way, you're able to do that. Where if you're in a group with everyone who has low hope, they've got no one modeling right. that hope that language, higher, right? Higher hope. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. and it was, it's nice because I already did have a, a good relationship for the most part, and the kids have relationships with each other. Yeah. Um, so when we did have to have some of those more difficult heavier conversations, they're more willing to, to talk about it and right. they're more willing to participate and buy into that. Another important part uh, that we added in year two is that we've been sort of, uh, sort of on our own path, but we've been kind of following along with the research, right? So yeah. as we go along, Snyder's work is sort of, you know, sort of always in the sidelines kind of yeah, watching yeah. us. And so uh, one of the things that we wanted to add, like, you know, the idea of the path is that one of the one of the way through the roadblocks or the obstacles is allies, right? And sort of yeah. who, who is that? And we know from like um, uh, Neufeld's work, right, yeah. about really the potential negative impacts of peers, right? If the most important thing in kids' lives are their peers, that's a really dangerous thing, right? So we wanted to sort of bring, we want to bring parents in mm -hmm. as natural allies on this path, right? And so part of it was that at the end, so at the end when we get to sort of the arrival part, one of the pieces that is the students share their path. So they share their work, mm -hmm. right? You know, which is sort of the, their understandings and learnings about who I am, you know, because part of, what, part of what they do, they do some surveys, they do some multiple intelligence things. Mm -hmm. 
they they start to sort of think about what am I good at, what am I not good at, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, my challenges, and that sort of builds the foundation and sort of like of looking at the types of things that would be good choices for me in the future, and also identifying what my roadblocks will be, yeah. right? Because some of the roadblocks are based upon who we are, yeah. right? Like, I don't like to get up in the morning. Yeah. That's my daily roadblock, and so my <laughs> wife has to harass me to get out of bed because yeah. every morning I have fifty reasons not yeah. to get out of bed, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so that, but I. Have an ally. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, so then you ended up had this. The students were able to present these to their yeah. parents. Oh, see, that to me sounds like a far well, more interesting and useful yes. kind of parent teacher student connection. Yeah. connection. But here, yeah. but here's one of the more interesting things about that is that that doesn't show up in the research. So oh, Snyder. And, you know, and you go to some of the other people that have worked on this, um, you know, uh, Lopez and, you know, you get the whole list of researchers who've taken his initial work. There's not an example. And actually, I remember reading one study. There's no example of where parents have played a part in this work. So this is sort of, for us, this is sort of, what's kind of neat is that so this is new ground. So we do need to write a journal article is what, what I'm it's, hearing. It's, <laughs> it's definitely, wor- like, as we move along here, it's, it's definitely worthy because yes, we, are, we are breaking some new ground. So, sure. and, and then these guys will share that with you. So the other thing that's new about this is that from so far from the research I've done is no one's actually worked with a whole class of whole students. Class. It's always been target groups, yeah. right? And so we're also breaking ground there that's in terms of working on hope in a classroom. Senator Herb says about, you know, identifying things that are instructionally significant. Yes. To me, these are instructionally significant yeah, things, absolutely. right? So, um, you know, maybe you guys can share a little bit about how, the, what the result was when parents got to sit down with their yeah. kids. Yeah. So uh, when Kelly and I got together to decide it started in November, we wanted that to happen earlier so we could yeah. structure it so that their learning path that they created would be finished in April in time for conferences. That was a big goal of ours for that second year was making sure that we shared with parents. There was only positive feedback from parents and there were several, I can recall several conversations of parents who work in the mental health field that were floored that we were talking about these types of things and giving this opportunity for kids to experience this type of of learning and it's relevant. Um, It extends itself into so many places so it gave them from there, you can tell which which families might talk about those types of mm-hmm. things at home, yeah. whereas some don't, the, the opportunity never comes comes around. So yeah. it gives them that opportunity, especially when they're at such a, an, a transitional age to, to make it like that, maybe a spark that happens, or just to make them think about, oh, I never knew you actually were interested in that. Yeah. Um, and for some kids, the, the biggest win by the end of it, and it took almost right to the end, was just to write down that their dream at the end of their their path was to own their own house. Yeah. And that was a really big breakthrough for one of those, yeah. those students. So I think it was really powerful. And like it seems like a really simple thing, but it was a really, I think it was a really powerful And what I like about experience. that too is they had a chance to practice it on their own away from their parents, right? And to do that discovery. So it's not like, well, my dad has always wanted me to be a doctor and so whenever those conversations come up at home it, it goes back to being that it's the I've done this discovery myself and now I want to share this and I like I as a parent of middle schooler and high schooler I, I just think it would be really fascinating to hear what my students right. had articulated or figured out about themselves on their own right. in their school with their peers without the influence of home as well as those obstacles what are the obstacles mm-hmm. that they see because they might be articulating different things at school than they would at home mm-hmm. right yeah, sure. yeah. and yeah. something else that was interesting too in the conversations <coughs> you hear while they're developing these with um, I can think of some students who I would assume that this would be a scenario where they wouldn't be having these conversations yeah, at home so yeah. they're sitting and saying well why do we have to do this my parents didn't do this and their life turned out fine so it makes me think that maybe you just have never had a conversation with your parents yeah. about how they decided to do those jobs in their life yeah mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. eventually the feedback was positive and our mm-hmm. results improved yeah. even though those kind of conversations I think it's important to have those conversations yeah, but in this I realized this this morning we were debriefing and we, we, we probably um, don't spend enough time talking about this because we're all like you guys are doing the thing and I'm always sort of Schools are so busy. There's so where much I get involved on, right? is yeah. I sort of get involved in sort of the big picture yeah. and I collect the data and all that. Yeah. But the thing is, uh, this morning recognized um, to, um, how we are using this thinking 
mm-hmm. right? And so how, like, that actual story that you're talking about, that girl who is, again, seems to have all the, um, all the sort of um, benefits, all the, she's got a lot of things on her side in the, um, the race of life. But the thing that you've noticed about her is that her pathways thinking is kind of stuck. She gets to a, a thing and she's then left staring at it, right? There, here's her road and there's a, there's a pothole and she's standing in front of it. What do I do now? So she doesn't have that kind of lateral thinking about how do I get around like that, right? So that's a good example. There's a very, very sort of talented child um, who should do good in the world of school. But you can see how she can easily get, you know, how, how that sort of can get bogged down to her. Mm-hmm. So then you need to think about her in particular. So what about pathways thinking? We need to work with kids, some kids on that, right? So like when we do interventions with kids, some kids, despite the classroom work, right, they have a particular skill area in reading where it might be comprehension or fluency or maybe their vocabulary that needs particular work. So we would do that in reading interventions, mm-hmm. yep. you know, is that we're going to work with this child on fluency. Well, now we could actually get to the point is we're going to work with this child on pathway thinking. Right, and so we're going to do a sort of little experiment, where we identified one for one student for Kelly to work with one on one, and three students to work with in a small group, and so it's kind of very much about okay, those kids, uh, it's pathway thinking they need to work with, right? So the three things of hope are goal setting, pathway thinking, and agency thinking. We're going to work with those three kids, but the other students who are really more concerned about her and and sort of it's agency thinking. We talked about is that. She is, it's not even about the pathways. She sees no, she does not see that she has any control over what's going to happen in her life. The work with her is much different than the work with these three other students, right? If we're going to make the work more powerful, we actually have to break it down by those three skills, you know, and work with individual students. Fascinating. Yeah. And then from the tier one level, so those would be like tier two, two, tier three. And then tier one, last year we really worked on working on short-term goal setting because that's the basis of all of it. And getting them to realize that short-term goals are the things that get us through our day. Yes. Whether we, th- we don't actually think about mm-hmm. doing them most yeah. of the time, yeah. but if we can actually structure and make really specific goals for ourselves, it can help yeah. us move along in a, in a more powerful way. And it connects with what we do every day as teachers with problem solving and critical thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is that we've also seen how, okay, so we're really super involved in math improvement at our school, yeah. right? So we we did some thinking last year about how does this extend in doing the math, right? Yeah. Working on math. So we're involved in sort of working with kids in terms of having kids analyzing their work. Yep. And so what are the things that you needed to do to get this problem right? And what are things that uh, you weren't able to do? And you use that as the basis of goal setting in math. So this sort of um, mindset is about life, but it's also about your academics as well, right? And so we can really extend that into the sort of um, organism of our school in terms of what happens really day. And so in that way, we can start really early. We were talking this morning about how in grade five, um, the real basis of hope theory, goal setting and pathway thinking, Mm -hmm. we can start to embed those things into just how we do school on a day-to-day basis. It just becomes the language, it becomes the practices. It's honestly made my job as a classroom teacher way easier when children have the ability to understand what metacognition is, how to think about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Is it serving me? What do I need to do differently to to get to the next step, I can kind of tell them up front, all right, what's your plan for this math class? What do you have to do? And the ones who've been involved for longer are are extremely independent at figuring out how to solve a math problem. Or if they hit, well, this is a hard question, but I remember in my action planning, I know the steps of these problems are here, here, here. So, oh, I'm I'm not doing a reciprocal in dividing mm-hmm. fractions properly. I flipped the wrong number. So then they go, they can fix it themselves now. So they're they're developing those steps to self-serve. Right. And it's mm. extremely powerful, especially when you teach a multi-age class and you have such a range of yeah. ability. It's mm-hmm. nice, I, I love seeing it because if the, I'm doing a good job, I guess, if the yes. kids can teach themselves yeah, yeah, and yeah. Some, <laughs> at some point. So or yeah. if you hear someone say to the other one, well, what step are we missing? You know, like exactly. if you hear them yeah. using the language or, yeah. you know, oh, it looks like you've yeah. reached an obstacle. Yeah. Like, you know, then they sometimes do it tongue in cheek, yeah. but you do start yeah. to hear the language yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. at least it's not, not every single student does it all the time, right. but there's a there's more doing it more of the time. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, at the end of year two, again, we saw that gender effect. We're developing some sense that this is a real thing, right? Right. 
And that's why sort of the, the, the four students we've sort of identified for this sort of tier two and tier three, they're females, right? right. Like I say, we've sort of identified that's a thing. So, so for Rhea's class, like their scores from the pre-assessment yeah. to the post-assessment jumped by 20%. Wow. Just the girls. Real, they're really, we're talking about self-efficacy too, yes. right here, right? With that, that was a, a significant effect, that's right? Significant you know, effect, so yeah. we, like I say, we're, we sort of have some confidence that this is a thing that actually girls probably need. You know, more so we're not seeing the effect with boys, but on the other hand, it doesn't imply that it's there's anything negative about doing no. this, right? So we're moving You're not doing harm to the boys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You're seeing now, the bigger change in the world. Yeah. Girls. Now the interesting yeah. thing is about that, you know, that we could explore further is that what would be the reasons for that, right? Are there right. some maturity things there, right? Girls and boys don't mature at the same level. Mm. Girls may be for whatever reason, through through their own development or the world they live in, are more focused on struggling and thinking their way through that. And maybe boys at at sort of fourteen aren't necessarily thinking about um, you know where where they're going to be, where they could be when they're thirty, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, sort of thing, right? Yeah. But the other thing that was interesting too was that uh, what happened unexpectedly last year was that two teachers let were absent during the year for significant periods okay, of time, yeah. and so what we found is when they returned, there was a significant jump in their students' score too. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. That relationship with the yeah. teacher, well, right? And, and, the... and then that led me into, because I'm really interested in John Hattie's work, yeah. and so I went back to his work, and he really identifies the student-teacher relationship as a really important factor in terms of uh, school achievement. And so we definitely saw that here, right? That's like that seems to fit in. But then then also looking at uh, Hattie led us down the path of looking at self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. And that all fits into this Absolutely. broader picture, right? Yeah. So, And that's the piece where what we're doing is actually about preparing kids for life, but it also has benefits for them academically. I think we're seeing that as well. So that was an interesting find from Absolutely. last year as well. then you you transition now into like a third year right yeah. and so what's different this year are you kind of just trying it again in a similar format or has there been any shifts or changes well we still follow the units obviously yeah, but absolutely. we had to change it up a little bit because we have the same kids that are now in grade eight right oh right yeah because so, it's a multi-year class right so okay. we're still following the same guidelines but we're yeah. changing up the activities so we've had our student services um, support worker come in and do some presentations oh, and nice. just changing some things but just keeping the same theme so right trying on. to keep it fresh I guess yes <laughs> let people deepen into it as they're uh, right. you know same ideas but we'll deepen into it and, and go different ways with yeah them. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other things that we thought about and also when we were creating the classes for the year was also to to look at students coming in and um, trying to balance the classes a bit more yes. in terms of their hope scores. That then led us down. Into that led us into another the ethical. First, our first sort of um, researcher's dilemma about ethics, right? Because yeah. then we realized that um, we have these scores connected to these kids, right? And that, in a sense, the the score represents to us a sort of uh, a measure of hopefulness. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we've taken this data, then you know the question of is this something that we should share with parents? Right. We hadn't thought that through, right? And how do you do that in a way that's supportive as well? Because if you're a parent and you find out your kid is not feeling very hopeful, right. what does that mean? And how do you then deal right. with that and feel yourself? And yeah, and, yeah and that's a conversation. Oh, hi. We just thought your kid's really hopeless. Yeah, uh, just thought we'd let you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and so <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of potentially front loading of work with parents Absolutely. in that regard, right? So what mm-hmm. we did this year is I said, don't tie the numbers to any kid. Let's stop that right now because yeah, we because then we're in a real more dilemma. Because the other point is, if a kid's score is really low, then does that not beckon a call to action? that we need to do something for that kid. But then the mm-hmm. question would be, we hadn't really thought out what would that be, <laughs> right? Especially so, at a school scale. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. So so this year it's like, okay, we don't want to know who's who. We're just dealing with this at tier one. We're looking at what we can do in terms of classroom teaching. And right. then we need to give some thought to what it looks like if we 
identify individuals again, right? right? You know, we think there's a way to do that. So yeah. we're thinking about we can go back to that next year because yeah. I think that we have to accept that if this tells us something about kids, then it tells us we should do something, right? Without focusing on the word hope, this is really about students' self-efficacy, their confidence in their ability to um, plan and goal set and sort of take on the world, right? Absolutely. And I think if we sort of, if we're able to sort of speak about it in those terms, I think that feel that's a lot more positive positive and uh, maybe palatable for parents, you know, to sort of to think about, right? Well, and we give a lot of data to parents we do, as well. Yeah. We also give reading yeah. scores or levels and math levels and yeah. those sorts of things. So again, it's that idea of if well-being is a priority yeah. in Manitoba K-12 education, which it is, yeah. as much as literacy and numeracy, mm-hmm. then we have numbers around those things too, yeah. right? But right. it's how we talk about them and, and how yeah. we do that work because yeah. it's it can be just as devastating as a parent to yeah. hear your child is below grade level right. in reading as, as whole. And, and are those things connected and what's the bigger picture right, and, right. right? Yeah. So, but there's a yeah. conversation the teacher has a conversation absolutely. with a parent when they share that information yeah. right? and so yeah. we just yeah. realized we weren't prepared for that conversation yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and how do we prepare teachers to have those conversations yeah, right? exactly, so they feel yeah. comfortable with sharing exactly, that information yeah. in a way that is yeah. Yeah. hopeful yeah. right yeah. or hope exactly. building right but it's a good example too of how like we don't live the life of researchers so right. those things don't enter our minds initially right so we're, this is like action You're research educator first yeah. right and yeah yeah I, I, yeah it's it's very interesting to think about all of these kind of dilemmas and things that you're having and how thoughtful that can be. Yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. So the, one of the things like that we're looking to do this year is how do we find a way of moving this into high school? Yes. Right? Okay. Uh, because ideally what would happen is that uh, once a child has developed a path they will revisit it, right? Yes. Because yeah. the thing is that I may think I'm going to be um, a nurse in grade eight. Yeah. It might well be it's completely something else in grade 11. And that's okay because the yeah. point is not to identify what your life is going to be in your future at grade eight. Yeah. But the point is that I'm thinking about the yes. future and, I'm, and I've got an ability to plan for it and work towards goals. That's really what it's about, right? And so to do that, you need to revisit these things all the way. So if it is the case that 50% of kids are in later high school, and haven't thought about this, have no idea, this seems to be one way to sort of mitigate that. Because yeah. lots of kids also make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Like, I will I graduate what I do. I don't know. My dad wants me to be this. I'll go to university. And we all know that a lot of kids uh, flounder a bit after mm-hmm. high school, Absolutely. right? To me, it's even more critical for kids in rural uh, scenarios to have thought this out because there's even more of a life change and a financial investment I have to go to the city to sort of get an education. So you want to hope that it's well thought out in advance, right? But we know, I mean, we know the experience of lots of kids uh, from rural areas that first year, it just kills them, right? I'd like to get access to some data, but I feel like I I have a lot of anecdotal Mm -hmm. information that I feel like there's something there in terms of rural kids and urban kids um, completing a degree Mm -hmm. that they program or or a diploma program they enter into right after high school, right? So the cost of that in terms of the government, and also look at this, I go, I flunk out, I fail. What does that do to your sense of hopeness or self-efficacy, right? Exactly. So the costs of that are too high, and that also leads into potential, you know, mental wellness issues down the road. So it seems to be a lot of great utility to finding a way for this at some level to continue into high school. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting what you're saying, too. I think you were talking about Dweck's work and and growth mindset, how well these work together, that your hope score is not a static score. You're hoping that your hope score will change, that that hope is not just a fixed concept right, and right. so that just because your your first score might indicate that you're feeling a little hopeless at this moment that snapshot of, shot of where you're at doesn't mean that's always what it's going to be and so I think that that's uh, really interesting as well. And that's one of the um, you know foundational beliefs of uh, Snyder's work mm-hmm. is that people can learn to change the way they think right. you know about being optimistic and hopeful and taking on challenges that these things can be altered and changed right and uh, and some of the other researchers says that actually Teachers are in an ideal position to do that, right? Yeah. But the thing is, it's got to be done in a way that it complements and it's embedded in the curriculum, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It can't be a program in a binder from some mm-hmm. external source. 
because that the history of that shows it doesn't sustain, right? And the, and the other thing that one of the sort of um, criteria when we were asked to develop a program is scalability. Yes. And so, I mean, you can look at this. I mean, we definitely have scalability. Absolutely. I mean, the cost of this is virtually nothing. Yeah. I mean, essentially field trips and we mm-hmm. bought some supplies and all that. So this is easily a thing that any school can take on, even at the simplest level of those three aspects of hope. Teachers can embed that in what they do every day, just like that at no cost. No school division or government's going to go bankrupt trying to implement um, a program based around hope theory, you know, into their classroom. Well, I think that answers a lot of my questions. I I did have this one question, but I think you answered it. But if you want to add anything more, you certainly can. But the sort of takeaway lessons or ideas for other schools or divisions, if they were wanting like you, you talked about a bit about that that it is actually an accessible program it's scalable it doesn't cost them that much but but if they were wanting to do something around hope and well-being and well-becoming did you have any sort of takeaway lessons from what you've done over the last couple of years I had just mentioned when we were talking today is just to keep it simple like yeah. we don't need to create these like gyms of these big programs yeah. so there's lots of things you can do with exercise and with yes. um, just who you are and that positive self-talk all of those are simple things they don't need to yeah. be turned into some big yeah. program. Yeah. And from a classroom teacher perspective, you always try to link it to a curriculum somehow. And there are opportunities in all subject areas to do mm-hmm. this. So in grade eight, we learn about rates and ratios. So we do work with looking at what it would look like to live on a minimum wage budget versus a, a, a job that you want to have. Right. How much would you make there? What would your life look like differently? Right. Or from a social studies in grade seven perspective, understanding what a standard of living and quality of yes. life is and comparing those types of factors. And there's just connections everywhere, right? Absolutely. So, and it's something, if you can be creative as a classroom teacher, you can embed it into your lessons every day. Yeah, I would definitely reiterate that. Like it can be kept real simple, but also teachers do lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. All that would fit into this. In fact, there's probably loads of teachers that do some of this stuff innately. Yes. Just recognize that we do goal setting, right? And we figure out how to problem solve our way through that, and we figure out how to stick with it, right? That sort of thing. There's no reason that this type of thinking can't happen in any classroom, right? And, and so we're so certainly willing to share any of that. If uh, any of your listeners, yes. you know, want to uh, contact us and, and get some more detail, uh, it's, a, it's a way, like, I guess, in conclusion, if we're going to do things in school, we have to capitalize on what we do well, is that we teach things, mm-hmm. is that we get a curriculum, and we can teach those things well. And so some of the talk that we've had, you know, around wellness is that we're not grief counselors. There's all these, you know, these really uh, difficult and harmful, um, you know, mental health problems mm-hmm. that kids have. And, and this is the area, right? Like 70% of mental health problems that people have as adults emerged in middle school, right? Mm-hmm. So what is it that we can give the kids? What we can give to them is the skills to work through that in their life, right? I can't help you through your grief. I can't fix that for you, but I can give you some skills so you can work that way through yourself, right? As well as as do well in school and do well at your job Mm -hmm. and do well in life, hopefully, right? That sort of thing. And I think that if schools are going to work mental health and wellness, that's the way to go. It's not to start training us to be grief counselors and how to, like I say, and I use that example, but all these other specific mental health problems, that's not, I don't believe that's the way. Uh, There are other professionals who do that, but we can help shape your thinking how to deal with those things that's the thing that we can give you yeah, it's right? not about fixing the immediate crisis it's about giving the mindset the language uh, the the ability to see this in a different way right, that yeah. you can use throughout your life and yeah. even to be able to know what resources such as yeah. grief counselors are out there when if you do have an immediate crisis but it's a bigger picture yeah a bigger yeah. picture thing yeah exactly yeah yeah. Well, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we forgot to say or you didn't get a chance to say that you'd like to? Uh, we probably said too much. Yeah. Oh, well, you guys were brilliant. I don't know what we're going to do. It's awesome. Thank you again so much. Thank I really you. appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Schools of Wellbeing is hosted by me, Jen Watt. It is executive produced by Jen Watt and the amazing Rebecca Herringer. It is also edited by the yet more amazing Rebecca Herringer. The beautiful music is composed and performed by a recent Bachelor of Education student from the University of Manitoba, Malcolm Eric Summers. This podcast is funded through support from my University of Manitoba Research Startup Funds. It is hosted on the Wellbeing and Wellbecoming in Schools in Canada Research Initiative website, which is available at wellbeinginschools, all one word, .ca. 
please feel free to email me comments or suggestions at jennifer.watt at umanitoba.ca or leave a review wherever you downloaded this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Be well, everyone.